Welcome to church this morning. It's my privilege to be um, delivering what I feel is God's heart and his message for us today. But before we do, at the well, I'll introduce the topic as keeping the rumor of God alive. And if you remember, you may not, I did first part of the series before, and it's on the podcast if you want to listen to the first part. We're doing part two today, but I thought I'd better first of all explain my husband's absence. Have we got a photo there? It might be a bit fuzzy, but this is Peter. Peter is not here today. He's up in Otaki Forks in a cold camping ground playing his mandolin. He's at a music festival. He is so passionate about that mandolin. This photo was taken in 2016, and I don't know if you know, but in in good Christian circles, we have an order of preference, of priority in our lives. It's God, our family, and then our work work in our church, etc. And in the family, normally the wife's at the top of it. But I can tell you that since 2016, I've been demoted a little bit, and there's a bit of a jostle between me and a mandolin. Okay, he is passionate about it. Now, I was really asking God today, well, am I really on track in continuing my topic, which I'm so passionate about, how to keep the rumor of God alive out there in the world we live in? And I went and had my coffee, as I do, very early in the morning at Cake and Kitchen, and I opened up the Sunday paper. And the Sunday paper, you probably can't read it, but in in that passage in the middle, one of those lift-out ones, it says... If not God, then what? Almost half of the Kiwis today say that they live without faith of any kind. But the studies suggest that faith itself actually boosts longevity. And the author of this article says she's going to explore how do those 50% of people in our world today, how do they go about filling the God-shaped hole? Good confirmation, huh? So listen up. I believe what I've got to share today is from the heart of God and from the Word of God. Keeping the rumor of God alive. Do you know, sometimes the big terminology in the, in the Bible gets us a little bit, um, I don't know, sometimes we don't really understand it. Words like redemption and atonement and uh, transformation or sanctification, they're all fancy words, but we need to bring them down to the reality of our lives. We need to bring them down to where the rubber really truly meets the road. And uh, I don't know, if you've been coming to church for the last sort of couple of months, you'll find there is a bit of a theme going on. And the theme is that of transformation. How can we as God's people who come to faith in our own personal development of our knowledge of Jesus, how can we be, be transformed and go on a journey? Trevor's mentioned it, Joel's mentioned it, Kristen's mentioned it, so that we are over here through a process of transformation where we're actually a living example to the world of filling that void and keeping that rumour of God alive so that it resonates in people's lives. It brings it to their attention that there is a God. What we've got to do is we've first of all got to know the story ourselves. And secondly, we've got to be the story. We have to be the story. The first part of my keeping the rumour of God alive focused on the fact that deep within us is a longing within each person on the face of the earth to rewrite their story. And we need to, as Christians, immerse ourselves in the radical story of redemption. 
This is where the collision of God and sin came together. There's a quote that should be coming up on the back of this right now. The reason that salvation is so easy to obtain is that it cost God so much. The cross is the place where God and sinful man merged with a tremendous collision and where the way of life was opened not only up to you and to me, but to all of humanity. But the cost, all the pain of that collision was absorbed by the heart of God. We need to know the message. We need to know what we're carrying and believe it at the depths, the core of our heart. And we would share it more if we truly understood it. The only basis on which God can forgive us and reinstate us back into God's favour is that he came and he died on the cross. And I want to say today, never accept it's, it's quite hard sometimes to get um, to the depths of the nature and character of God. And sometimes if we're not careful, we just put it all in the love of God without realising that God has to balance the love that he has for us with the justice, the fact that he's a just and a holy God. So we are never to accept um, the view of the fatherhood of God that he's just full of love if it blots out the atonement of what the cross was all about and why he had to come. The real truth of God cannot be without the atonement of God. Otherwise, he would have to contradict his very character. I, at the moment, have been pondering on how exciting it is to see adults come to faith. I love to see children come to faith, to be born into the family and grow and develop and come to know God for themselves. But I've had a long-standing fascination with how do adults who have got no history, particularly of being brought up in the faith, how do they radically turn their lives around and come to faith? I was reminded recently in a book that I'm reading on C.S. Lewis, and it's, this, is, this might surprise some of you if you're C.S. Lewis fans. There's the story or the rumour that went along that he sort of got on a bus, went for a ride, and when he got off the bus, he said, I got on the bus without having faith, and I left the bus actually declaring faith and believing the truth. But this is actually what truly happened in a room in, in Oxford, in, the, in his college, at Magdalen College. He said, there I was alone in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, I felt a steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I earnestly desired not to meet. He was doing everything he could to avoid this God. That which I greatly feared had come at last upon me. And in that term, in 1929, at that moment, I gave in. And I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night, one of the most dejected and reluctant converts in all of England. 
He had a moment in time when he met God. Now, for those of you who have been around the last few Sundays, you'll realise that we've got a couple who aren't here today. It's the school holidays, they may be away, named Ricky and Tracy. And I've been praying for them, and I was praying for them. It's in my journal, it's labelled, it's got a little tag here. And for weeks I've been praying that they would have the opportunity as they came closer and closer to God, that they would have the opportunity at a moment in time to be able to declare that they gave in the battle and God was God and come to him. And Kristen Williams' um, uh, service a couple of Sundays ago, I was praying for different people up the front. I lifted up my eyes and in front of me, there was Tracy and there was Ricky. What brought them to God? There's a verse that says in Romans 2, 3 to 4, that the goodness of God brings around repentance. And you can ask Ricky for himself, but the story is, the rumour is that Ricky asked for something. They couldn't have children. And he prayed that God would allow them to conceive and have a child. And then he added, instead of one, what about two? And how many of you know that those two have actually got twins? Pretty noisy twins at times, and they both have to run in different directions when they take off. We need to know the message in order to be the message. Kristen Williams made a great comment when he said, where's God today? And where's Jesus? And where's the Holy Spirit? Now, we know that Jesus sits beside the Father. Now, I'm not going to get too technical about exactly where that is. But it's the Holy Spirit that is the one that is amongst us today and in the world we live in. And the radical thing about the spreading the rumour of God is God entrusts us to be that message. It is us that he gives us the mandate to, to be that message and spread that rumour. Immerse yourself in the radical story of redemption. And the second point I want to make today is clarify what's God's part and what's your part Now, in redemption, our sin and the sin of all humanity was laid upon Jesus on the cross. It's a done deal. It's finished. You do not have to work for your salvation. Your redemption is complete. But the other part of that is we're part of a process of being transformed more and more into the image of God. And that's the part we need to participate in. That's the part we need to be involved in. Today I want to share of two simple things of what I believe that process of transformation. There's plenty more, but I want to speak about two things today. And the first one is that we are transformed when we spend time in the Word of God. God's Word says that we, the Bible is a living document. It's an interaction of the God of the universe with humanity throughout time. But it's a living document because it's forever growing and the family of God is growing. It's about a collective deal of God with humanity as well as an individual one. I was driving the other day and I heard somebody on Rima. Now, I don't listen to it all the time, um, but I was listening to it at that stage. And it said, if we truly believe that the word of God was something that would transform us, If we're really honest, and I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, how many of us struggle to spend time in the Word of God? It's a great ambition. We want to do it, but most of us would say we need to do it more. 
And I want to suggest, if we told our young people, if we told our young people that the Word of God is a textbook, a manual for living, it's a how-to guide on how to follow Jesus. Do you know, we're in an information age that is just over the top with information. I want to suggest to you that we need to change the way that we see the Word of God, not only that it is living, but we need to see that it's not just information. It's not just information. I've been on a journey uh, into the book of Psalms recently, and there's a great quote. It says, I read Psalms when I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble every day. Therefore, I read Psalms every day. The book that I've been reading on Psalms talks about the language of Psalms. And why I say if we look at the Word of God just as a textbook of information, we struggle to engage with it. It says that there are three different forms of communication, and those of you who are teachers will know it very easily. There is one form of a communication which is just information and instruction. There's another that's a motivation, get you up and going, inspiration. But when I was reading the book of Psalms, it reminded me that Psalms is written in the third language, not information, not motivation and rah, 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 but in a, in a language of relationship, of intimacy. In fact, it's the first language that that little baby will ever learn, even without words, as little Hannah Grace Googles and gars and her mother talks to her. There's a language going on between them, and they know what it is. And after about six weeks, the mother can tell you what that cry's all about. It's not that she's got dirty nappies, it's because she's hungry, or it's because she's hot. The language of Psalms, and I want to get you inspired to get back into the Word of God, get back into Psalms. It's a language at the bottom, at, well, at, at a different level. It's guttural, it's raw, it's full of a language of relationship. Now, just as an example, if I can find it, Peter got a card the other day. You can't really see it there, but it's from one of his five grandchildren. And I want to see if you can guess whether this is information, inspiration, or relationship. It says, happy birthday, Papa. We knew it was from Ella because it had yellow flowers, and she's a very, very beautiful little girl that just adores flowers. She says, dear Papa, I hope you have a great birthday. I love you so much that my heart could burst with love for you from Ella. Now, wouldn't you want to get to know that little girl if you were her papa? Wouldn't you want to get to know her more? I want to encourage you that the book of Psalms is written in that kind of language. It's written in that kind of language. There is a philosopher and a theologian and a scholar that was born around, and Andre may correct me, somewhere around about a thousand, a thousand years after Jesus was born, and his name was Saint Aslam, A-N-S-E-L-M, okay? Now, he wrote his great doctoral thesis with, with um, many, many hours he spent on it. It was revolutionary at the time because his doctoral thesis was on the proof of God's existence, as he progressed and was transformed more and more into the image of God and wanting to express that to the world around him, he rewrote re that thesis. Instead of being in the language of information, 
in the language of love. And the one that you can read that's now around is written in a different language. We need to be firmly grounded in the love of God. Know that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And know that as Isaiah says in chapter 38, verse 18, God strains, he lifts himself up, he goes to great lengths to get your attention and mine and the people in which the world we live in all around us. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, the way that we're transformed into the image of God is by looking into the mirror of the word of God. And the more times we spend in that, looking into that mirror, we are transformed on the inside more and more to reflect the glory of God. The sad part is that we're all reflecting something. It's what are we reflecting? We're all reflecting something to the world around us. Are we reflecting more and more the true image of God? Romans 12 verse 2 says we're transformed by getting into the word of God. Our mind is transformed and renewed. And Hebrews 4 verse 2 says the word of God, this word here as we read it, is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing our thoughts and intentions. I had to think about what a two-edged sword would be like. If I shoved it into your stomach at any stage, and if you were my enemy, and then I jiggled it, it says that I'd do twice the amount of damage because it's got a sharpness on both sides. That's what the Word of God is like. We do not know what is in our heart until the Word of God opens it up and shows us. Most of us think we're fine, we're great, we're dandy, we're doing okay, until God gets down to the thought and intentions and not just our actions. Sin is the only explanation of why Jesus came to the earth and it's the only explanation for our grief and our suffering. And even though it is a complete and finished deal, we are in the trans process of transformation and we need to deal. It's not a, not a fancy subject and a very a one that you put your hand up and preach on every Sunday. We have to get used to dealing with the sins in our lives to transform us into the image of God. At the moment, there is a podcast that Andre has introduced me to, which says, Who Killed Mars Hill? Has anybody heard of Mars Hill? Really, really big church in the States. Mega, mega, mega. Now, I'm not going to mention names because names aren't important. But in that, the founding person of that, that church that just grew and grew and grew has eventually been held accountable, not for immorality, not for heresy, and not for doing anything illegal, but he was asked to step down, and this podcast goes through the journey of the church from where it was to where it is today. He was found guilty of being a bully in the workplace. God held him accountable for his arrogance, his quick temper, 
and for the way that he dealt with other people around him with harsh speech and a domineering manner. God is after more than just what we do wrong. He is after the intentions and motivations in our hearts. And that's not something to fear, that's something to welcome because God wants us to be able to spread the rumour of God. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, it's time to strip aside the unnecessary weights and the sins that so easily entangle us. Following Jesus is not an easy pathway because as we're in that process of transformation, he goes into the innermost thoughts and intentions of our hearts to cleanse us through his word, bring them to attention that we can be a more accurate reflection of who he is. The rules are very simple. If you want to be transformed, there's only one rule you need to know. If sin rules in me, it stifles the word of the life of God. If I allow the Spirit of God to transform me, my life in God flourishes. It's an ongoing, ever, ever um, continuous process. God's dealing with the sins in our lives does not technically make us right with him because as we said, he's already paid that price, but it does determine our usefulness for God. I want our church to be known as a useful congregation, a community of people, not just people who know the truth, but have been willing to go through the process of transformation to hold out that rumour that God is truly alive today to fill that void in people's lives that they're trying to stuff with so many other things. I haven't had time to read this article, but it's a good couple of pages of how people are trying to stuff that hole that was made for God. We need to know what our world's thinking around us to be able to be relevant to them. The way our lives are transformed is through the Word of God, through getting into the Word of God. The second thing I want to share today is, I don't know if your life is any different to mine, but I find I am transformed more through the times of adversity than I am when everything is going just great and I have no challenges. It's the time where there is the greatest potential for growth, when we're in times of adversity. Now, once again, getting back to my um, newfound passion of getting into Psalms, um, Psalms was collated at the time when the children of Israel, God's chosen people, were in captivity, sitting by the river of Babylon. You know that song? They were in a foreign country. They were in the midst of captivity. They were suffering. They were modern-day refugees. And they said to each other, how can we possibly sing? How can we possibly open our voice and say anything other than just how miserable life is? And then one of them burst into a song. And they remembered and they recalled through their tears the faithfulness of God. 
they recalled what was true of God. I don't know today, I would imagine sitting amongst us today, there's at least one person going through a time of adversity and challenge. If I asked you to raise your hands, I would imagine it would probably be most of us. Adversity and challenge is part of the process of transformation when we take that challenge and adversity focused in on God. In Psalms, we find two questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? And secondly, in Psalm 2, people don't spend quite so much time on it, but why do good things happen to bad people? Most of us spend our lives thinking, why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Psalms was a reminder to the children of Israel that it was read aloud. Psalms were never meant to be just for our so-called modern-day quiet times. If you look at Psalms, at the top of each one, it says it's dedicated to the director of music or it's dedicated to somebody. And the Psalms were meant to be read aloud one single psalm at a time, and in amongst the audience, sitting amongst the people, there would be somebody who maybe couldn't relate to the desperate plea of somebody else's heart sitting beside them, but it would remind them that there are people around them in trouble and pain. And they would try to be the children of God, the community of God, to the people around them. At any one time you read psalms, some of it seems really pertinent and relevant to you, and other times it doesn't. I went to bed the other night really heavy in my heart over some stuff and battles that were going on in, in a number of areas in my workplace and thinking, God, this is so hard. And then I went to bed and I read Psalm 13. Now you have a look at Psalm 13. I'll read it out to you. See if you can relate to anything like any of this. How long will you forget me, God? O oh Lord, forever, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I lay up my cares within me and have my sorrow of my heart day after day? How long is my enemy going to exalt himself over me? Consider and answer me, O oh God. Listen to the eye, lighten my eye, the eyes of my faith to behold your face, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest the enemy say to me, I have prevailed over him and I've won. And those that trouble, it, trouble me rejoice. Now, why does it change in, in verse five? Why does it change to be, but I have trusted and leaned on and been confident in your mercy and your loving kindness and my heart shall rejoice and be in high spirits because of your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I've often said I won't, won't let anybody get hold of any of my journals. They're my property. No one else is to read them. I'll probably burn them before I die. But my journal is full of psalms like that, where I lay my burden before God and I say, God, God, and then I stop and I listen. And, you know, I've learnt not to record too much of my own grizzling complaints because Psalms can look a bit like that. I listen for God's reply and I remind myself of who he is, the truth about God. And then I go to sleep with a light spirit and not a heavy heart. 
in Psalm 13, it, when it changes, it cha- at the start of Psalm 13, it has five hard questions that are put to God. And I don't know if you've put some hard questions to God at times. He doesn't mind. Followed by three serious petitions to God. And in the midst of them, there are three calls of desperation to God. And then abruptly and without any account, it changes and it switches from a lament to a praise. There's no evidence in Psalm 13, I'm told, that the questions were answered. There's no evidence that even the first instalment of God granting of any of those petitions occurred. And there is no evidence or hint that the desperate circumstances of the writer of Psalm 13 changed. But see, either Jesus is a deceiver who stunningly stunningly deceived even the Apostle Paul or else extraordinary extraordinary things happen to someone who holds on to the love of God when the odds are against them. I've also been in a journey into the book of Job Another great one, the title of that one is Shaking My Fist at God. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe I'm the only one that's wanted to shake my fist at God and say, God, look at the circumstances of my life. Where are you? Like Psalms, it's full of raw emotion and it's uncomfortable to read at times. But deep down in our own hearts, we know that that's how we feel too. If only we'd be more honest. We need to be honest. We need to get a passion for the Word of God and find out what that story of Job was all about. See, the story of Job is a bit like a Shakespearean play where you see the opening chapter and it's put on stage and you see nothing in the middle until the end and then the end is told to us. And we know at the beginning there's that conversation between God and Satan and and there's this negotiation And then God in his sovereignty allows some circumstances to happen in Job's life. And at the end of it, we see Job Job giving up the battle and saying, God, you are God. I'm, I'm just Job. I'm just Job. I bow my knee before you. You are the almighty God. And in the middle, all those other chapters are just like the story of your life and mine, where things just at times are difficult. They're really difficult at times. The story of Job is not a textbook on suffering. Let me remind you. The revelation I got by studying the book of Job is it's not a textbook on suffering or what not to say when others are suffering. It's not about why do bad things happen to good people. The story of Job has been included in our Bible to tell us where God is in the midst of our suffering and remind us that God is right there in the middle. There is nothing in your life, there is nothing in my life that escapes God's attention. And there are times when in his sovereignty, he allows, he does not cause things to happen. But let me tell you, He is there, right in the middle of whatever you are facing today. Not on the side, not with his attention on somebody else. He has the ability to have his attention on my life, as well as courts, 
as well as Grants, as well as Anne's and Craig's. God does not miss for a moment what's going on in our lives. It is one thing to choose adversity and suffering, but it's quite another to enter into adversity and suffering through the orchestration of circumstances that have been filtered through the sovereignty of God's hands. One of the biggest things to get depressed about in life is when you think you're alone, when you think God does not notice, and when you think he's gone on a holiday. And I want to tell you, no matter who you are today, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're walking through, but God is there in the middle. And we are transformed in the middle of our suffering. This is rather raw to me at the moment because I have a very precious friend. Some of you will remember Lloyd and Ray Houghton from many years ago in the CFUH. They actually were part of the team that planted the church in Lower Hutt. We were with Lloyd and Ray. They've come back from overseas recently and we were with them at Easter time. And prior to that, they let me in on a bit of a secret. They said that Ray had come back from um, a biking trip. She's very fit. She's very active. She's... um, yeah, they're right into all sorts of things that are, that are healthy. And she came back and just had a little bit of a tingle down one side of her hand and down the leg. So she thought, well, I better not be stupid. I love my grandchildren. I love my husband. I love life. I'm going to go and get that checked out before I go to sleep tonight. She went and she got told that they did a CT scan and they said, we hate, this is so hard to tell you, but there's a little dot in your brain, in this area of your brain, and to us, it tells us you've had a stroke. Now, you've got no risk factors. There is nothing there that tells us that you should be having a stroke, but the evidence is there. That was the mid-February. We went down at Easter time and Lloyd said to us, he said, Kerry, can you just keep an eye on Ray and tell me what, how you think she's really going after this little stroke? I've, I'm really suspicious that she's got a, a second event of some kind, but she doesn't want to get it checked out and she's really resistant, but keep an eye on her. We left on the Monday of Easter and we said to Lloyd, you have to get her checked out. The family said, Ray, you just got to go to the hospital. She went to the hospital and that night we found out Um, Just like our lovely Vanessa Billington, we found out that she had a grade four glioblastoma multiform, which means she's got a brain tumour, absolutely inoperable, and her life and her her days are limited. She spent a number of uh, weeks in Wellington Hospital having radiotherapy, and when they stopped that, the tumour just grew massively. She was unconscious last week. She's in the hospice. She's woken up of her unconsciousness. But from the time of her diagnosis, the one thing that was overwhelming was that she rested in the arms of the everlasting Father. A peace that goes way beyond our understanding has come into that family's lives. And I know it's going to be a tough journey, a really tough journey. But I want to honour my friend in the fact that her first response to suffering and pain was not to ask questions, but to trust. Now, of course, we're looking for a miracle. But just like Vanessa, we looked for that with her as well. And God gave Vanessa that very same peace that goes beyond our understanding. I want to finish on a quote that says, the problem is that many of us act like pagans in a crisis. 
There is only one in the crowd who is daring enough to invest his or her faith in the character of God. When we're faced with adversity, instead of, I'm not suggesting we embrace it and say, bring it on, I want more of it. It's not like that at all. But in the middle of adversity, we are changed, just as we are when we look into the Word of God. And if you're suffering hard times, I want to tell you, do what my friend Ray is doing. She's resting in the everlasting arms of the Father in the middle of a really difficult circumstance. Unless we are willing to come face to face with the darkest and deepest facts of life without coming out of it damaging our view of God's character, we do not fully yet know him. We are transformed through the word of God. We are transformed not through the times when life is so easy, but through more when the times are challenging and have adversity attached to them. The goal is that we will be part of the solution to the myriads of people that you live around and I work around who are filling their lives with anything other than that void which God wants to fill. I want us as a community to rise up to that challenge. It can't be done by an individual. I live in my world, but you live in yours and corporately. God calls us to be a community. In faith, in fact, even that transformation process where I address the intentions of my heart that are dark, that I didn't even know were there. I need you. I need you as my community to help me walk through that process and be brave enough to say, God, you're bringing attention to something in my life that needs to change, but it's going to take courage. I need a friend. I need someone to walk through this with me and be accountable. We need to be known as a community, not just of individuals, but a community collectively that go out there into our world of upper hut to let the world know that it's not just a rumour, it is true. God is alive and well. Thank you so much, Kerry. That was that was great. It was really, really good. And just out of that, I want to encourage you to take up the two things she's talked about, you know, to to get into the Word, um, get into Psalms, you know, allow them, A, to be instructive, but as Carrie said, keep reading so that the Scripture washes over you, and that is where the transformation comes. And just to the second part, to how you see adversity, I perhaps want to confess to you that um, in my life, in adversity in the past, I have reacted to God and I've reacted in ways that I've actually needed to repent of. And I, I want to just put it out there in case perhaps you have anything like that in your lives as well, to repent of it and then ask God to give you His view of it or just to change it. The good thing about God is He's incredibly forgiving. If you come to say, Lord, I stuffed up, I'm sorry, so just yeah, but I encourage you also to listen to the sermon again when you get home. That was out, that was great, just outstanding, awesome. Thank you.